This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Here we are one more time at Core Brain Journal, and we have an interesting guest today who is loaded, my friends, with enthusiasm. And she is enthusiastic about the topic of her new book, which is going to be quite exciting for us to talk about. Saida Desolet has been here before with us on episode 2004. Uh, she was then talking about the sensual woman. And guess what we're going to be talking about, folks, today? How about the concept, the practice, the understanding, the interface of human beings with the concept of desire? Oh, my gosh. Desire on radio? This is going to be interesting. So I look forward to it. Thanks so much for joining us, Saeed. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to be back. And I just absolutely love our conversations, Charles. So I'm happy to jump in. Yeah, I've got, I skipped her name a little bit. We were just joking before we started. I got to get the French. I, gotta, <laughs> you know, I am not French and I'm going to try to get it right if we do it again. So. So let me tell you a little bit about our sponsors, and then we'll go back and talk to uh, Desiree and get going on a whole scissor on Desiree. You know, I have a person that works with me named Desiree, so that's where I'm getting messy up with that. <laughs> Core Brain Journal is supported by Great Plains Laboratory. They are deep international biomedical testing leaders for improved, targeted mind science details. You know that's what we're about over here at Core Brain Journal. As both laboratory and webinar global thought leaders, they provide the most comprehensive set of hard data measurement tools for real biomedical answers beyond commonplace guesswork. They also provide multiple training webinars for both the public and medical providers on how to use that data effectively in the offices, anywhere. They are internationally connected, my friends. So you want to check out their website for references and testing details. And they do have a special supportive offer here for our listeners. You can register for a complimentary test drawing over there. And the, the tests are a variety of tests. I'm not going to, they probably, I don't actually know how many tests they have, but they have a number of really cool biomedical tests and they will help you understand the results of the test. So they're not just giving away the test. They're going to help you understand what the outcome is. So if you go over to greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ for Core Brain Journal, and that's spelled exactly the way it sounds, greatplainslaboratory.com forward slash CBJ, and go over there and register for a test and see, see what you'd be interested in uh, picking up and doing something with it. So with that, let me tell you about our guest, okay? So you may have listened to her before. I think she's really a, a person, a woman who's taking a very significant, straightforward stand on issues that really absolutely need to be addressed right there in the public discourse. So her new book is about desire, and we're going to be talking about that in just a moment. But the issue is, let me tell you about her. She is a person who really talks a great deal about the Me Too movement and what's happened. You start with Harvey Weinstein and you go through, and we just had somebody else that was blown out from CBS recently on the same topic. And the issue is women who are now coming forward about their sexual abuse at the hands of these various men are only now truly claiming it. And it is their sexual sovereignty, the right to 
control their own sexual and, and physical fate, not being subject to the demands, the whims, the control, are the perversion of others who are really, in certain respects, trying to control them, no question about it. And that's what goes on. So women are stepping forward and actually taking a stand. And the nice thing about Saida is she's on it. She talks about it a great deal. And then she takes it a bit further from the issue that we were talking about previously and the whole thing of the sensual woman. But how do you understand this whole issue of desire? So let me tell you a little more about her. She is a thought leader and speaker on the growing edge of researching ways that women can use their minds, bodies, and spirits to create richer lives through their sensual selves. Saida serves as a guide to women who believe in the transformation as a lifelong path of learning, discovery, and a walk to their own personal freedom. And she did suffer a violent rape that nearly cost her life and that put her on this path of self-discovery and enlightenment of others. Self-described as a street savvy, equipped with a feisty farm girl strength and the grace of a dancer. And I would say that's true. Now, you guys don't get the privilege of talking to her and actually seeing her in action, but she's graceful. She's neat. She puts it up. You can really uh, get introduced when you go over to her website, which we'll talk about later. She's not naive. In fact, this French-Canadian native was raised on a First Nations reservation in Manitoba, where sexual abuse of children, teens, and young women were commonplace. Yet, despite seeing that openly, she never expected to be so violently attacked by a man she was actually dating. And the shocking violation that she had there left her in such an excruciating physical and emotional pain with personal deep damage that upon waking up in the emergency room after surgery, she was told she had only two weeks to live. Oh, my gosh. You know, I didn't remember that part. Say so that's, oh, my gosh. We can't, you know, the doctors make another pronouncement that is quite incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, but she did live and she, and her quote is, I chose to defy the surgeon's diagnosis and instead choose to live. Life after rape, after near death takes on a different quality. It's going to, she's going to stand up and be counted. Either you become a shutdown, just getting by version of yourself, or you suddenly feel like you've been given a new ticket on life and she feels the latter. Her journey started in defiance. She defied death, and she defied the badge of a victim. She is not going to be a victim, friends. And she claimed herself in ways that she never knew possible. So after two decades of work with women on their sexuality and sensuality, she's now a PhD, has two books out, one the previous one that I talked about, which was The Sensual Woman, and now this one on Desire. Right here on the radio, we're going to talk about Desire, and we're going to learn about it in great detail. So with that, let's get talking. How did you get into this interesting second book? And by the way, before you even answer that question, I've got to tell our listeners, I told her I wanted her to come back because we had such a great conversation previously. And I think this subject deserves immediate attention from really everyone, every single one of our listeners. You need to forward it to other women who are interested. I think the men need to listen to it too, because what happens is we're all human beings scurrying around on the face of the earth. The way she handled herself on the first interview regarding sensuality and, and that whole murky scene of where a woman is with herself in that regard, let's get down to talk about this other interesting dimension, which is desire. And 
So that's how I asked her back. So thank you for coming back. Now, how did you get on the desire topic? Back to the question. Yeah, that's a really great question. A desire, the book itself, you know, sometimes in life you have a sense something's about to happen, but you're just not sure what. It was Mm -hmm. one of those. It was just, it was like percolating in my consciousness before I was even aware that there was another book. And then boom, Mm -hmm. I was like, there's another book. What (laughs) is it about? And then I realized it's going to be about desire, but how dare I write about desire? There's Mm -hmm. so many books on desire. I'm not a desire researcher because there's like that whole side of desire. There's a lot of research on human sexuality and the function of desire. And then there's the other facet of desire, which is, you know, the 50 shades of gray and all the like, you know, those types of desire books. And I didn't want to write in either of those polarities. My experience of desire was so unique and different. I wanted to bring a perspective on desire that could possibly liberate every person who would just contemplate the concept that I had in my own heart. And so that's how it started. It wrote itself, basically. I just kind of went, okay, here we go. Let's do it. And this little project has been a miraculous journey, I have to say. In what sense? When you say a miraculous journey, some things have happened to you because you wrote the book. Let's talk a little bit about that, please. Yeah. So the, the first thing that happened is a lot of travel. I ended up going to a book writer's retreat in Mozambique. I ended up going to Costa Rica to finish the book. I ended up having contact with people I would have probably never had contact with, like a, an editor from Hay House, for example, who isn't on. Right. And she didn't take the project on personally, but she She said, look, I don't have time, but I'm going to make time. This is such an important topic. It's got to get out there. And everyone who came to the project, the editor finally got, she goes, I'm not even going to charge you much because this is a passion project. What you have to say has to get out there. And this just kept happening with this little book. So I'm just excited to talk about the actual ideas of it. And that's how it came to be. It's just, I felt it. I said, yes. And it, (laughs) it wrote itself. Well, now, here's an interesting question. Uh, At least it's interesting to me because I'm thinking about it. And I think it would be interesting to our listeners as well, because desire is such a large, comprehensive, indeed, possibly complex term when you think about it, because it has both somatic implications from a sexual drive point of view, and it has very deep psychological implications from a thinking experience point of view. Indeed, uh, I have another person that's going to be on. He doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to invite him because I've interviewed him on another occasion. And it has a dopamine, <laughs> pharmacologic neurotransmitter effect. So there are a number of things from dopamine all the way down to pure hormonal to psychological. How did you actually attack this subject in your book with such a diversity of perspectives? Yeah, well, I wanted a language for everyday people because my community are just normal women from all over the world who are not interested in uh, really complex, deep science. They like the idea, but they want it distilled, for example. Mm -hmm. So what I thought is, for me, can I make desire something real and tangible? What is it in my own life? What's happening here? And then what am I seeing with my clients? So my perspective of desire would be more from a almost like a philosophical mm-hmm. standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that desires had a bad rap for a very long time. If we look back at the early philosophers who debated desire, they really didn't have high regard for it. Mm. If we look at most religious perspectives on desire, including things like Buddhism, like a lot of these different viewpoints, desire is 
supposedly at the heart of all human suffering. Mm. And so what I propose in the book is that we might have gotten it wrong, that somehow I have a sense, here, I'm going to define desire for you. This is how I see it. I actually see it as a force of nature. I see it as an emergent force of nature that speaks to us through our physicality. It's how we experience it. And it's a directional force, meaning it's evolutionary. So what an individual will experience through desire is unique to the individual and it leads the individual on their life journey. And I have a sense that this force is not just accessible to humans, but it's at the core of all existence. So something, to become something from nothing, there needs to be a spark. And so I'm proposing that that spark is desire as a force of nature. We use the word desire, which unfortunately is associated with sexuality most of the time. Sometimes it's for chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) But for the most part, we don't understand that maybe it's actually a natural force. And maybe it actually has an evolutionary purpose. And maybe what has happened is that this natural occurrence in our body that could actually be something that leads us and guides us, who doesn't want an internal compass, right? Right now, especially, Mm -hmm. we're all pretty lost. There's a lot of apathy and kind of like, where do we go from here? But what if we have this internal compass? And what if the thing around desire that has been misleading us isn't actually desire itself, but it's the act of hijacking? desire. So this is the idea that I propose in the book. Well, that last word put me right into a mental flip. Okay. So (laughs) let me run the, run the tape back a little bit because I was tracking with you very well because I was thinking, you know, this is really a transcendent view that you're proposing a a much larger view of desire and a much more larger comprehensive and has a certain measure of complexity to it because it does embrace all these other measures all at one time from the way your perspective is. And then you said, then you flipped it out. And I wonder where you're going with that. If you could please amplify on that last little concept, because I'm, I was in the clouds there. And then we we crashed you. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about hijacked desires. We need to be aware of them. This is what's actually causing us to quote unquote suffer or to have aversion to it or to be like even overexpressing it. So to hijack something means that you take over its original purpose and you put on your own intent. So say we all have this natural force that speaks to us and causes us to take action. This is what desire mm-hmm. does. It's, it's mm-hmm. a force that inspires us to take action. But you impose upon it ideals and mandates so that now you desire something you believe you desire it because you've been taught to desire it. That's a hijacked desire. So if all my life I've been told I'm supposed to fall in love with a man who's at least six foot two in height and he makes X amount of money and he looks a certain way and we're going to live in a certain house, I'm going to desire that. And I'm going to believe that that's my true desire. And I'm going to put all my energy into it. And I speak from experience because that's what I married the first time I got married. <laughs> I married every ideal and it lasted a whole month so that's how long forever was for me it was a whole month ouch and i crashed really hard and i remember just the agony of that and having to face the dissolution of this hijacked desire and going but what if someone had been there to tell me what would you really love 
what is it you're actually looking for in this experience? And I was looking for profound respect, connection, and depth in the area of love. And if I had vocalized that, it would have been very clear that that wasn't present. Yeah, you didn't have your goals set clearly. And as a result of that, you in a way didn't really know what you were shopping for. You were, you were shopping by external superimposed values. That Which were, I believe were my own, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you thought they were your own. And I think the hijack principle is a good one because now I get what you're talking about because really what you were saying, you didn't quite say this way, but I said the moral values, economic values, things that were more not in tune with who you are personally, they were had to do with the morality of the environment, the um, economics of the environment, your demographic, if you will, as opposed to who you were in your essence. And what you're saying, look, in my essence, I'm a different person than all that. And then my problem was I didn't have my essence defined appropriately. And then in, in my healing process, I've redefined myself is really kind of what you're saying. Is that right? Yeah. So the invitation that the book has is, have you marinated in your own essence? Do you deeply know what your own heart yearns? What really matters to you? It doesn't matter if no one else validates it or thinks it's viable. If it exists in your heart and it matters, it's important. And so that's where the book is attempting to show us in different areas. There's like six different areas that I define uh, desire, kind of like thematic areas of desire and how hijacked desires appear in those areas and how, what we can kind of do to reclaim the true desire of our own hearts in those areas. So I think that's an important inquiry. I I don't answer a lot of questions in the book. It's more like giving you ideas and asking you questions so that you can come to your own truth. Because I really believe that it's an individual journey into desire. Yeah. So what you just said is you're not the authority. You're really helping that person be the authority and achieve a certain level of authority within themselves. So they gain the confidence of actually being tied up exactly with what they, I shouldn't say tied up, it's a little bit pejorative, but they they become involved more uh, explicitly with their own wishes and their own, what they want to do with this lifetime. They only get one, they don't get two. And so then they're refining, you're refining your mission, I'm refining my mission, but this is your attempt to help others refine their own mission so they can actually move from, sometimes they have trauma, sometimes they don't. They could simply have misunderstanding. Exactly. And and I find right now, because desires, you know, there's another level of vilifying it to make it evil. Like it's it's behind all these bad actions and these bad choices. And what I am proposing, it's social mandates and it's certain behaviors that we have adopted that desire itself is ambivalent. It's just a force of nature. How we use it is how we use it. So if we're using it in a way that's disconnected, so let's just look, there's the desire for sex. You know, that's a very basic one. I call it the desire of eros. That's a very natural desire. But the majority of how we're enculturated into sexuality is very disconnected. So when we're having these conversations, few people really know what they deeply yearn for in this area and how to even start to have those questions and conversation. Say another area would be the desire of contribution. If you're not contributing something, you're not really having, you're not feeling your place in the world. It's a really powerful desire. So these things are very important because at least for me, I was told what I should do 
for my contribution that I should be a lawyer or a doctor, et cetera, et cetera, when I was younger. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the truth in my heart. And obviously that's not what I am now because I did follow my heart. So these are, are important ideas because what I'm noticing is few of us are truly designing our own lives and taking a stand for them. Well, you know, you said something. I'm, I'm really quite interested in that point. I think the, just these two issues alone, I mean, sexuality takes it to one direction, which in a way, as you implied, is a no-no direction. You know, you really shouldn't even talk about it. You just act it out in some appropriate way. And then everything's going to be okay. And even when you act it out, you keep your mouth shut about it. Instead of like really thinking about the relationship of your sexuality in terms of your entire life process, and then the whole thing of a compassionate contribution is, is really just something that people don't think about. And yet when you, like, for example, I'm in a really interesting catbird seat with this core brain journal because we talk to so many people who are redefining themselves in their own mindset by really thinking about the contribution that they're making in this life. What am I actually going to do? What's my, what am I going to leave? What's my legacy after I'm gone? So just those two alone are so interesting. Now, I'm going to take a break here, and I'm going to ask you a question when we get back. And you, you alluded to it because it was already starting to occur to me as you were talking. And you alluded to it just a couple of moments ago. And I want to ask you when we come back, how do you get somebody? First of all, I'd love to hear those six things. That's going to be time consuming. You may be able to do it. You may not, but those would be interesting. But the real thing I think that's going to be useful for working with an individual such as yourself in coaching guidance is how you get back on track. I mean, I think the, the issue there is so many of us are on and off the wagon in a positive way. And when we fall off the wagon, how do we get back on and what's the guidance there? What's the, what are some tips that you can pass on that will take us into that next level? So, folks, we will be back in just a moment to hear what Saida tells us about that interesting question. Today, the world of mind, science, psychiatry, and mental health is rapidly changing with innovative, comprehensive testing that takes both patients and practitioners into a new world of measured details with useful, understandable, and remarkably actionable plans. The key phrase here is cost-effective. Testing also introduces a key parallel word, predictability. Psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medications and our brief hospitalizations, arises directly from the complexity of measurable brain-body imbalances and impediments that explicitly interfere with medical outcomes and create costly difficulties with inadequately informed supplement and medication trials over time. Great Plains provides a leadership team of biomedical experts with advanced laboratory insights approved nationally both by the FDA and CLIA laboratory certifications and is available internationally for both public and medical professions. Great Plains Laboratory is the primary laboratory we've used at CoreSight for years with excellent customer service for both patients and medical colleagues. They are on the spot. They get it every time. In addition, they provide exemplary training modules, which are webinars and conferences, in an effort to broaden practice perspectives wherever you live. Do follow up on one of these complimentary test offers today at http greatplainslaboratory.com 
forward slash CBJ. Yeah, that's Core Brain Journal CBJ. So just to quickly remind you folks, we were talking about really some interesting questions about desire and the larger sense of one's relationship with themselves, their life purpose, their mission. And certainly desire has to be part of that. I mean, if you are not on a mission, then you're missing this whole desire opportunity and the multiple levels of fulfillment that you might experience if you really become one with yourself in that respect in what Saida is talking about. And so the question I asked her just before the break is, hey, that's really interesting. And folks, that's the reason to read the book is to find out what she's saying about that. Because, I mean, isn't this an interesting conversation? But the question that comes back is, what do we do? What do the coaches do? What do the therapists do? What do you do with yourself when you kind of fall off and you miss, who am I? How did I get myself into this awful mess? How do I get back on the way? Yes, I love this question. First of all, one of the things that I love and I mention a lot in my work is the human experience is messy. It's Mm -hmm. not a neat and tidy thing. And so one of the things I love to remind everyone is it's going to be messy. If we can accept that it's messy, sometimes it'll get really messy. So we will fall off or we will have an experience where we feel shattered. But inevitably, and this is one of the desires I talk about, is desire to thrive. There is a living pulse in our being that wants us to thrive. And that will propel us. So at some point, we might feel like it's dark, it's dark, it's dark. But then at some point, we see something. Maybe it's the ray of sunlight one morning that touches us. Maybe it's the kindness of a stranger. Maybe it's a sentence that we read. And that desire to thrive will get kindled. And we start to move in that direction. So what's beautiful about desire is it will never die. It's always with us till our last breath. If you can imagine it almost like an, an animating intelligence within your being who's just waiting for your attention. So the second you turn your attention to what is it that I would love? I get that it's all shit right now. This is the question. What would I love? And so many people know the answer to what they don't like, to what they hate, to what they cannot stand. Few have contemplated what they would deeply love. And I actually think that that is the question that will also lead us to have creative conversations with all these oppositional views. Yes, I get that all exists, but what would we love? It's a powerful question. It's also a very vulnerable question. So part of what I've done with the book is there's a little fire symbol inside the book. Whenever that shows up, that means there's a video that I did with my community who read the book in advance. And we went- Good for you. Yeah. So, so this question gets answered and those are free. But what I also did is uh, some free audio meditations that, to help people have a moment alone with their own hearts and to remember that that's always accessible to them and that they never have to even say to anyone what lives in there. The journey is at least to just admit it to ourselves. That's the starting point. You know, that's so interesting. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about that. It's a really beautiful point that you raise. I mean, it's very endearing in a way that's very easy to just get with a book as if the book was a person just putting their arm around you and saying, hey, you know, this is okay. Here's, here's how you can do it. This is who, how you find yourself again. But I have to put my little psychiatrist hat on for a moment and say <laughs> the, little, the little cognitive part of me And I want your feedback about this. This is something I don't know, but I'm just thinking about responding to what you're talking about. And the thought that occurs to me when a person falls off the wagon is, and this is a cognitive 
remark. Again, I apologize for it because you're talking about a much larger picture, but I'm thinking about pain as a benefit and not that you go out and ask for it. This is not sadomasochism. This isn't pain from that perspective. But of course, when you go off your path, there is a moment of being, as you were when you had that dreadful thing happen to you, you were in serious pain. And what you did is you decided to make a lesson out of it and multiple lessons out of it. It wasn't as simplistic as one lesson. And I'm wondering what you think about the idea in terms of getting back on the path from the point of view of finding the meaning in that experience. What is the lesson in that experience that can take me back closer to myself? Now, that's a little bit more cognitive than where you are, but what do you think about that? I love that question. I think it's awesome. I think it's amazing because we do need to ground this for people, right? Conceptually, mm-hmm. we, we, it's only of service if we can actually use this information. So for me, there's a couple things here. Inquiry is essential. It's always been through the ages, a very important part of human awakening and human evolution is the ability to inquire like, okay, so I'm having this pain. It really sucks. Is there anything about this that I can learn? I actually remember being on the floor with snot and like just like dying from ag- emotional agony. Oh, and I remember the only thing that seemed remotely viable, like the smallest rope that could bring me out of that darkness is the thought, this has got to serve someone or something. It wasn't even about me. I couldn't even make it about me. I was gone. This pain, this awfulness has got to serve something. And I swear to you, the phone rang like five minutes later and someone in a bigger pain needed someone with compassion. So our pain is inevitable. I think we pain is part of the human experience. So if we can lean in and and not necessarily create an identity around the pain, but to get curious. And a lot of our pain, I feel, is because we haven't learned to trust our own essence. We're attempting to live someone else's idealistic version of ourselves. And then there's going to be a cracking in our being at some point of dissonance from who we really are in our essence and who we're attempting to be through the learned uh, socially conditioned self. Those moments are painful, but they're actually awakening moments. They're beautiful moments. And so the book takes that into consideration. I even created a playbook, Charles, where you can read each chapter, but then be an inquiry. So Mm -hmm. you can discover about yourself because I knew that I couldn't just throw concepts out there. I had to help people land these ideas and make them very personal. Make them operational. Yes. You know, actionable. Yes. You know, I think one of the things you just said, which, and I get that, and it's uh, really quite interesting because in a way, one of the dimensions of uh, falling off the path is metaphorically chasing the black dog. You lose your consciousness about yourself and you go off on the other agendas, and that somewhere in that, in fact, when you were in that horrible situation, you were asking, that was the beginning of an inquiry, because you were asking yourself, how in the heck did I get in this doggone situation? (laughs) And if I could figure this out, this is going to be meaningful for other human beings, because I had something happen to me that was a complete shock and surprise to me, and my blinders were on. I'm I'm extrapolating on what you said. I'm not exaggerating. I'm extrapolating on it. And then you found some answers there and have been continuing to find answers there because you can pop back to your identification with that person and others who are in that quandary 
and you weren't chasing the black dog necessarily. You were, but you were chasing something that was not really you. And that would be the blinder factor. The blinders would then be inserted because you weren't really connecting with who you were and you didn't say no. Somewhere in there, you need to say no a lot earlier and say, this is not working for me because you're a smart woman. You are a very deep, smart woman. So you had the radar was on and beeping. And yet you said, I can master this is not. So yeah, you had those blinders on. And then, and then you said, okay, now I've got to learn how to pay attention to these blinders and, and to the limitations there and really come more deeply connected with who I am. But I think people also kind of chase, actually metaphorically do chase, pardon me, the black dog. They, they see something, it's, you know, the metaphoric glittering, whatever. I'm going to chase that. And somehow that's real. And then they have to come back and redefine who they are, which is the most important reality, if you think about it. And the reality is what their contribution is going to be. I mean, you said that so eloquently. I thought it was really beautiful. I want to talk about another piece of the book that we haven't mentioned, but it ties into what you just said in terms of cognitive dissonance between like the mandates and then the essence. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's really important to understand, there's two factors. One is how powerful the need to belong is ingrained in a human being and how we are, we will override our own wisdom and alarm bells and everything just so we can fit in or just so we can belong. This is a very important thing to understand about ourselves. So what I propose often in those cases is, are you willing to belong to life instead of a group or a person or a thing? Because if we belong to life, which we do, then we stop bargaining, you know, our own essence. The other piece that is really important is the concept of fulfillment. In our understanding of fulfillment, it is the eternal carrot dangling before us. And we are constantly wanting this carrot. We want this thing called fulfillment and we try and go for it. Like if I have X amount of, I don't know, a salary of this much and a house like this, like these things of fulfillment. When I get there, I will be the ultimately happy version of myself. And what I propose in the book is that fulfillment isn't a destination. It's actually a state of being and that we can enter that state of being all the way along the journey because that's what's important is the journey and not where we're going to end up. Because usually when we get where we want to go, we're like, that's it. Yeah. What's next? You know. <laughs> right, right. So there's this wonderful thing about human beings that we naturally want to emerge and evolve. We don't want to stay in that same spot. But as we're pursuing fulfillment, we forget, what is it that we're really going for here? Like if you had that thing that you think will give you that ultimate fulfillment, what is it you're experiencing right now in your body if you imagine you already have it? It's a feeling of intense aliveness. And so if it's the feeling of intense aliveness, that's a state of being. It's a felt state that we can cultivate right here, right now, and throughout the journey. So now fulfillment, because it really only cares about one thing, right? It's how deeply alive we are right now. So now instead of this carrot, we're experiencing the truth of our nature is that we are fulfilled and we get to continue to experience that felt state as we allow ourselves to get more and more creative and to go for the things that deeply matter in our life. That's basically what desire is serving as a force of nature within our own being. Well, I love the way you said that because that's one of the big reasons I wasn't going to about to interrupt you because it was so darn interesting. But 
You know, the whole idea <laughs> of fulfillment as a process is interesting. That's number one. But I was thinking about the compassionate contribution that you make as a human being when you actually live a fulfilled life. Because what's happening is you're not doing any damage and you're contributing to the lives of others without any specific objective mission except to be in a contributory mode. I mean, basically, when you're in a fulfilled mode, you're going to be contributing because you're not adding negative. You're in a, you're actually adding positives. I'm being somewhat simplistic about it, but that is what happens. So then when you are there and you know you're there, then the larger essence of who you are is making this contribution. Wouldn't it be great if we could all do that? I mean, if we could stay in that mode and it'd be a great place to be stuck. It's definitely something I'm proposing as an intentional like mass choice that our society, we start to look at how much apathy has damaged us, how much apathy continues to damage us, and how we have to be daring. So then the final part of the book is exploring the part of human nature that is daring. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be here because the things we had to live through to get here required a lot of daring. And apathy is actually like a silent killer. And so I'm, I'm desiring to kindle in others this aspect of daring. And sometimes daring just means getting out of bed when you don't feel like it. I'm not talking jumping off a cliff kind of daring. I'm talking about maybe it's daring to, instead of being right, finding a way to be connected and letting, letting that go. So being daring is, I think, an incredible invitation for us all because it's going to take tremendous daring to stand in, on your own two feet and fully occupy your sovereign space and to stand for your heart and know that it matters and know that even if no one else approves, who you are as a human being matters and your presence has impact. Knowing that is, I think, very transformative because what happens when people believe they don't matter and don't have impact? They make choices that have tremendous impact, but it's usually very negative and it's usually a burden on others. So when you understand that even the smallest thing you do in choice and action has impact and you start to look at that and then you start to go for what you love instead of what you believe you have to do there's something beautiful that starts to emerge because now what you love so you're doing what you love charles i'm doing what mm -hmm. i love and look at what we're creating together that's what happens it's like your genius and my genius get to come together and create something that didn't exist before and we all every person has that well, you know, one of the things that hit me when you were talking about it is the uh, courage that's necessary. It's kind of a warrior courage, if you will, because it's not an aggressive thing like you're going to go ahead and kill somebody or you're going to take over a nation or something like that. But the pressures against a person from others who are not on that level, it's like Gandhi being shot. The idea of you reaching some kind of internal spiritual essence where you're making a larger universal contribution it's intimidating. It's frightening for others who aren't there. And people, you know, my experience with people who perceive a person like yourself and what you're talking about, being out of the box, is sort of like you're not as anxious as they are. So something, and you really don't care. So there must be something wrong with you because you're not responding to the same superficial levels of things that I am. Therefore, you may be narcissistic. I mean, I have to be really careful about working with you because 
<laughs> you may be a dyed-in-the-wool narcissist, and you are going to suck me up and use me somehow. So I've got to figure out how I can take you down because I have no darn idea of figuring out what's actually going on with you because I'm so superficially involved myself, so narcissistically involved with all these other games that you actually might be a deeper narcissist than I am. And I've got to figure out. <laughs> and right. I think that does happen. I really do. I think people are intimidated by out of the box thinking and by creativity. And the more, if you will, spiritual universal concept that you have, I mean, everything we're talking about is spirituality, even though we haven't talked about that word, because I think that word diminishes what you're talking about, because it throws it into some kind of quasi-religious whatever, whereas you're not really talking about religion. You're talking about a deeper understanding, universal concepts. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I do actually address spirituality and religion in the book. I actually dare to associate desire with it, and I call it the desire of rapture. We won't get into it here just for timing reasons, but it, it is a very important call for people to have a relationship with whatever they want to call their spiritual orientation mm -hmm. or something kind of bigger than their small personal self. So that's definitely in the book, and I, I write about that. But what I wanted to say with what you were saying with contribution Sometimes the greatest contribution you can do on the planet is just to be your full human self. I mean, I cannot tell you how many times when I am willing to be grounded in myself and just see someone, just to be there and see them and hear them, it dissolves all those games very quickly. And that's what we have. I think that's the greatest thing we can give each other is the capacity to start to have enough solid core self that we can interact with others and let go of the judgments and let go of, I mean, I have lots of judgments, but I'm mm -hmm. able to let them go and get curious. So mm -hmm. part of the invitation, not only is to be daring, is to get curious. And that's what we're contributing. And many times in life, I just saw a little video where there was this family sitting in the hospital and there are certain racial orientation and then there's this other person and they keep moving away they move their child away from this man and they move away from him and they're all waiting and then the doctor calls them all into the office which is kind of weird because the guy's a stranger and he it turns out that he was the bone marrow donor for their daughter the reason why she's alive so here's like when we can if we can have a little for me it's like a return to self it's like how i treat myself is how i'm going to treat others if i'm uncomfortable with with who I really am, then of course I'm gonna, it's gonna reflect outwardly. So the, the book is an invitation to learn to really appreciate your deep, unique self and to discover what it is and to spend time understanding that the mystery of your own life will not be revealed in its totality. That's not how it works. The only thing that will be revealed is what's next, what's obvious. And that's fun. It's an adventure. And I think we need a little bit of fun and adventure uh, to break us out of, uh, like I said, apathy and numbness. You know, this has been such an interesting conversation. I'd like to have it go on for a long period of time. I think <laughs> the issue is I was very quite pleased to hear that you had the videos over on your site and that people could then use the book to directly interface with you in additional ways. So you're actually making it actionable by connecting with more information. The book is only the book. It's a guide. But then you have these other things that can actually flesh it out a little bit more. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate having the chance to talk to you. And so we want to send people over there. 
and Saeed Desilet. We got to get that squared away. It's well, let's let's give them an easier one, Charles. Okay, go <laughs> Sorry ahead. to interrupt, but, but Saeed Desilet is like an impossible word on the radio. Yeah, it's a tough one. I, my <laughs> so tongue got wrapped around my ear on that one. Yes, right. So let's just do send them to desirethebook.com. It's just purely Darn. a page about the book. Gives you all the information how to get it. Once you have it, then there's desirethebook.club. It's a free membership with all those videos and audios and the playbook and everything. Well, fun. That sounds great. That sounds yeah. that's, that's fantastic. I'm gonna, I was looking for that. I don't know if you saw me looking for it. I was trying to figure out yeah. where I was going to plug it, but I'm glad you got it down. I'm going to write it down so I get, make sure I get it in the yeah. show notes before I do the next interview because that should be in the show notes. I mean, it's just totally very cool. Another very interesting to think about you coming from a First Nation reservation in Manitoba of having been hit by the very big proverbial bus and then pulling yourself together and coming in with this really deep and yet interesting and actionable. I've said the word too many times this interview, but I think that's really what it has to be for a person to make the contribution because everyone would like to grow. There's an innate charge that we all have to grow and contribute. And thanks so much for helping us do that. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Josh, for having me. And it's just such a pleasure always to speak with you. We'll do it again sometime, girl. Thank you again. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.